Hey there, No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. I'm excited to share with you our guest today, Claudette Rowley. Claudette is the owner of Cultural Brilliance. I'm going to have her talk a little bit about that. She has done amazing work with companies around culture. And that's a particular interest of mine. And I'm going to be asking some questions about that because I've at least my experience is culture can make or break us an organization and sometimes even the people who are in it. So I'm excited to learn more from Claudette. But before we do, let me tell you a little bit about her. She is the CEO of Cultural Brilliance, which I mentioned already, which is a cultural design and change management consultancy. And she's the author of Cultural Brilliance, The DNA of Organizational Excellence. And that is a 2019 book. But then over the last 20 years, which is amazing to think about the longevity of her career, she has consulted at Fortune 1000 companies, small businesses, academic institutions, and startups. So she's helped people create and be very proactive and innovative in terms of their cultures in order to deliver the results thereafter. And she's passionate about helping organizations resolve complex, um, complex problems in a way that honors the intelligence of their cultural system and the brilliance of their people, which so those things are going together in there. So Claudette, let me turn it over to you and ask you to, to embellish a little more on that introduction, and then we'll learn more about you and dive into your work. Great. Thanks so much, Sharon. Really happy to be here. And so my, yeah, as you mentioned, I started my business 20 years ago. And prior to that, I was a social worker. So I've always had a very strong, you know, I wanted to contribute to the world, change the world side to me. Uh, And that's really where my work on culture has come from. You know, just as you mentioned, working in organizations and seeing that uh, people are sometimes suffering, seeing that things could be so much better than they are. And then also realizing that organizations... And this is something that dawned on me over time, leave so much potential on the table in the form of their culture, that they really, that there's so much more possible. There's so much potential there in the people and in the organizational system that nobody often recognizes or not enough people. So those are a lot of the insights I had that really led to the book that I wrote, which actually just launched in early 2019, as you mentioned. And I'm really excited to put all these ideas out into the world. Let me ask you, I love that you said that statement of leaving um, potential on the table as it relates to culture. Can you give an example of, just one example of how you've seen that happen? Absolutely. I mean, I, a common one, I think, for many people in organizations, and probably all of us have experienced this at some point in our careers, is an organization in which it is not safe to share different or new ideas a culture that doesn't really allow that. Or if you do, you're at the risk of, of uh, you know, being made fun of or being talked about behind your back or someone getting upset with you if they don't like your opinion or your idea. And so the minute we don't make it safe for people to just express ideas, you've lost a tremendous amount of potential because they're not going to innovate. They're not going to be creative. They're not going to solve problems very well. So... I notice because partly because I interview a number of people, but I also notice when I do research, you can look at a company or a nonprofit or an individual's web page, whatever, and there will be things they'll have value statements or what they believe in. But I also find when you dig a little deeper, sometimes those are at odds at 
with what actually happens in an organization. Mm-hmm. How so, true. Well, how does an organization know when they're like, maybe I have built something, I think, all right, I've got this solid culture going on. What warning signs might I have that that is not what's happening? That's a great question. And I, there are some subtle warning signs and not so subtle warning signs. And it's true. It's, it's you know, organizations will put up, you know, something about their culture or values on the website. And then I'll hear employees say this, are you kidding me? This doesn't happen here. You know, this is just, this is not actually what occurs. So if, if you have meetings in which, meetings that are silent, where people aren't speaking up, um, that's an early sign that you're having a cultural issue, most likely, right? It's something to investigate and ask questions about and be curious about. Uh, if people are punished for telling the truth, their, the truth of their experience in your organization, you need to look at your culture. That's pretty serious. Another serious one is a, a culture that allows bullying behavior. And I always like to make the distinction that when I say bullying, I mean a, you know repeated, recurring pattern of behavior that puts other people down, humiliates people, makes people feel bad, hurts them emotionally, things like that, makes them feel threatened. I'm not talking about somebody who you know once or twice had a bad day and said something they probably shouldn't have said. We're talking about something that's really repetitive. So if you're tolerating bullies because they're rainmakers and they have the biggest account and you think they're creative geniuses, you need to look at your culture. Uh, because you don't, you're not honoring treating people well and with respect. Um, a couple that are a little less serious, but no less important in terms of looking at culture is a leader or leadership team that asks for data and information, which is a good thing to ask for, usually, but they don't do anything with it. So, yep, can you, yeah, can you get us some metrics on that? Can you, you know, give us the last six months worth of data on, you know, this other thing? And then they never do anything with it, and people get really frustrated and really disengaged. And another one is your culture makes people leave. So if you have a steady stream of people leaving and a steady stream of people being hired and then leaving, time to take a look at your culture. So if someone were, so you just give me so many ideas to things to ask you about. So if, so let's say I want to go in, I'm changing careers and I'm, you know, I'm employed now, but I'm thinking, okay, I want to go into another career. Maybe I'm leaving because of my current culture. Let's assume I'm not. But say I want to go in and investigate a culture and I can get myself invited or be around and I walk in and I'm able to attend one of their kind of regular meetings, nothing confidential. If I notice people being silent or only one or two people dominating the conversation or body language, would those be cues to me to say this may not be as it appears or is that just too much of a surface? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I think one meeting is, it's hard to say, right? But if you went to two, three, four, let's say, and you saw pretty much the same thing, um, then you, yeah, you would wonder, I, because I'd be curious about things like, do, why aren't people speaking up? Is that systemic in the culture that people don't, or is it this particular team, right? Um, is it the culture of that team? But if we go to a different team, it, the meeting would look different. Also that you you know, the body language, do people, are people not saying much? Do they seem really engaged? That's interesting, right? Are people, God forbid, on their phones <laughs> during the meeting? Um, really bad sign. And things like that. But what's the, and what's the nature of the conversation? Do people seem to be careful? Or are they willing to, to, to get into a conversation that may have a little tension or debate to it, which can be very positive and healthy? So those are some of the things I, I watch for. 
but I'd want to, like you said, I'd want to attend a few meetings to see if those were any that were actually behavioral patterns or, or if the meeting was a one-off. Okay. So now I want to ask you to back up. I just realized we started talking about culture and I want to make sure I'm understanding it in the way that you intend and also that our listeners do. So when you define culture, how do you define it? So I define culture as mindsets, behaviors, and structures that sequence in patterns that are often unseen. And these patterns drive communication, decision-making, and results in organizations. So I look at culture at three levels, mindset, behavior, and structure, because when we're trying to shift culture, those are the three three levels you want to look at. More simply put, um, I think of culture is a set of beliefs that have that indicate the behavioral norms, that drive the behavioral norms in your organization. And those, those behaviors, as we know, are key to the results that you're getting. That's helpful because sometimes culture is taken just in terms of more demographic kinds of descriptors, if mm-hmm. you will. When people, do you think people underestimate the impact of culture on an organization or a company? I, absolutely. I, I really think that people do. Um, and I think some of that has to do with the fact that it is hard, it's sometimes hard, really hard to understand your own culture because you're in it all day long, right? It's like you are you're seeped in it. And so unless the, the, I believe people can start to shift and make positive changes in the culture from any level, but unless you have your leadership team really on board because they're the key decision makers, it's going to be hard to change. But yeah, I, I think culture is underestimated. And I think, as I said, a lot of it's because people don't understand how it works or they think it's, it's, the, it's morale or the, it's the mm. social calendar. And those things are very important, absolutely, and they're part of culture. But they're not, they're not really the driving force. And when I, I had a very early experience in my mid-20s um, work experience where I worked in one organization and I, I had this really great experience. I had this amazing manager and I saw myself who gave me a, you know, a project, a, this team I needed to build. And he said, here are your parameters and do whatever you want within the parameters. So it was very you know, creative for me. And I really thrived and I created something I was really proud of that met the organizational needs. I felt really confident. And then I moved to a different state and got another job. And I, the culture was toxic. And I didn't know anything about culture. You know, I was in my late 20s by then. I, I, but I didn't know anything about culture and I, in any formal way. And it was toxic. And I still did a good job there. And I had an interesting job. But I noticed how my confidence really took a hit. And I noticed that difference even so many years ago. And, and so I think it was, the, it was those two contrasting experiences that really started me on this path. So to answer your question about how powerful it is, yeah, it can take down your confidence to be in a, in a not even a toxic culture, but one that just doesn't work very well. Does, when you think about a toxic culture, and I'm reflecting back onto one of the signs about bullying yeah. Right. And sometimes how that can be, at least in my work experience over my long career, <laughs> career mm-hmm. bullying can be subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think about as you're describing a toxic culture and not working well, are people, how would they know they're in a toxic culture if it's not overt? I mean, if someone's yelling at you and you're, they're berating you all the time, that's fairly overt. But what mm-hmm. if it's less obvious than that? What are, how might someone know that? Because I would imagine you could feel kind of nuts. Right. You, yeah, you could. You could. I think it, 
it's such it's a very insightful question because I think a lot of times it's not over the toxicity, right? Because people will often maintain a certain level of professionalism on the surface, right? So they're not necessarily going to yell. I mean, of course, I've seen that happen too. But I think when there's a lot of um, office politics, when there's a lot of gossip, that's but it's all behind the scenes, kind of underneath the table gossip. Um, it's not really in front of other people. Uh, if you you know you don't feel comfortable taking a risk because you're worried you're going to get stabbed in the back or no one's going to support you. You have, you have to have your own back, right? No one's going to have it, that sort of feeling. Those are all signs that you're probably in some kind of toxic culture. I don't, I don't think office politics needs to be part of culture. And I certainly don't think gossip need, needs to be part of any culture for sure. And I find, I mentioned those because I find they're often accepted as just part of working in an organization. And I think we can actually do better. So let's say I invite you in because I'm not clear on what my problem is, but I'm looking and I'm assuming I'm part of the problem if it's my organization. So I'm not clear, but I've got this sense that something's not right and my numbers just indicate a little bit might be like that. And I say, Claudette, can you come in and help us? So first mm-hmm. question is, do, is it beneficial to have an external person come help or mm-hmm. is it an inside job? And then if it is more beneficial, even if it's not, would you talk up to us about what does that like to work with someone like you? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, of course, I'm a bit biased, but I think it's, it's helpful to have an external person, at least at the beginning. And here's why, because if, when I go into an organization, I am as objective as it's possible for a human to be, right? Because I don't, I'm there to learn, observe, assess. I, I don't have any skin in the game other than helping the organization. So I am not steeped in the culture. So it is much easier for me to observe it, the parts that are observable. And so I think when you're trying to, and I I talk about in my work, you know, understanding how a culture really operates. And so when you're in that phase of trying to understand how your culture operates, to have an outside perspective is really, really valuable. You can do it without an outside perspective, but you're going to need to have someone internally who is skilled at being able to stand outside of things, so to speak, and be objective and really forget everything he or she knows, thinks that they know about the culture. That's huge. And when you are in your um, objective learning phase, are you looking within those buckets of mindset, behavior, and structure and kind of evaluating or observing those functions or something different? And that's part of it. Those buckets are things at the end of that first assessment phase, which I call authenticity in my system. Um, But at the end of it, that's where we start you know, filling those buckets, so to speak, with the information we've gathered. Uh, but initially, yeah, I mean, certainly observation, and we can we observe can observe some behaviors. But what you know, uh, organizations may go through some different assessments. There's a an assessment I usually facilitate a group exercise that I facilitate. I'll do observing, I'll do interviewing, whatever the case may be. But to doing lots of different things to gather information, and you know, we usually that's all planned out in advance. You know what's going to happen, but. Once we've gathered the information, then I actually work with the company itself to start putting, you know, what mindsets have we uncovered? You know, what are the beliefs you've uncovered about the culture? What are um, the behaviors that you're seeing, you know, and what are the structures, which could be, you know, the way the operations work, the systems and processes work, things like that. When you're working with a company and so you've got all this information, you go back and you're sharing it with the company. Are there particular people or is it like, do you share, if the company's a 20 person, maybe 
up to 30 person size company. Are you wanting to share your results with everybody or just decision makers? How do you approach that work? I like to be as inclusive as possible because it, it pays off. It pays off in two. I just think it's the right thing to do, but it also pays off in two ways. You get much more buy-in from the beginning when everybody's involved, or at least representatives of every team and department and level, if it's too big of a company. And you also get better information, right? Because no leader can see an entire culture. I don't care how gifted the leader is. So if it's a 20-person, 30-person company, yeah, I'm presenting all information to everybody, which is great. And then at some there's a depending, and this is partly negotiated with the organization, but you know, once we're at maybe 40, 50 people in a room, we need to start having more representative representatives of different teams and departments because it's just going to be too many people uh, in one area, one room, excuse me. So now I'm not going to, I'm not come, having you come in to fix something or help me diagnose something and then resolve. But if I'm in a startup phase, what are things that I can do to intentionally set or design a culture and then not, and make it more than just words on a page? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's fun. That's fun when you get to intentionally, well, a culture can be intentionally designed, but at the beginning, right? When it's fresh. So one is to, is to think about how do, how do we build trust and psychological safety into our culture? And if, for those who aren't familiar with psychological safety, it's simply this idea that your organization or team is safe for interpersonal risk-taking, which means you can say you made a mistake and discuss how to learn from it. You can give and receive feedback. You can share ideas. You can share an unpopular opinion. And you're not worried there's going to be retribution for it. So from the beginning, how are we going to have safe psychological safety and trust in our organization? What kind of culture do we need to be successful given the purpose or mission of our startup or the industry that we're in? And how can we really honor and respect and support people, I think is a really, a really important question. And we know there are startups where people are working 80 hours a week and they love it and they, they're, they're jazzed up and that would, they would consider that respectful, right? And in other industries, if you're working 80 hours a week, it's really disrespectful. So it, context matters tremendously in culture. So understanding, you know, what, what's going to work for everybody? And then what are, you know, what are values in, our, in your organization? What are values that are incredibly important to you that will lead to your success? And finally, what behaviors tell us that those values are, to your point, are being lived, right? They're not just words on a page or on a website. What behaviors will tell us those values are being lived? How do you synchronize or align organizational values with individual values. And what I mean by that is you've got a heart of an organization. I'm going to just think the organization as a being. And these are the organization's values. And I agree with the values. But where, when you think about the respect piece, I'm thinking about the context you mentioned. And that, but in my family values, I don't align. When push comes to shove, I have non-negotiable family values that I'm going to hold on to that may come in conflict, which may be that, and it's not out of the norm, we could say everybody's going to show up on a Sunday and maybe I never work on a Sunday because I have a religious faith that I choose to not do that. And I uphold my family value for whatever reason. I pulled that one out of the air. How do you align those things where the company doesn't feel like that person's not a fit and yet feels they can get the best 
from that person and that person feels honored to be part of that company? That is a really interesting question. And I think, you know, at some level, we know that people's values, generally speaking, need to be aligned with the organization for the individual people to feel satisfied, right? Um, I can't work for an organization that, that has completely different values than I do. Uh, that would just be out of alignment. Uh, so there, there is that in terms of the individual satisfaction. And then the organization. So if it, taking your example of someone who wouldn't work on a Sunday for religious reasons, even though the organization might, it's, I, think, I think of that as an honest conversation, right? In the best of cultures. How do we have, so here we are, this is the situation, right? The company has an expectation. We have somebody who will, of course, prioritize their religious faith. And so how do we handle that? How do we negotiate it? How do we find a solution that would work for everybody? And in a great culture, I think you have that conversation. So that's part of the, especially if you're in a startup, that's part of the design. Would that be part of the design intentional so that we would, it's like we honor, I mean, it seems so... um, bland or broad to say we honor cultural difference, but more of that we adapt or whatever, but you are intentional at the front end that you recognize people may show up who are different, but still ultimately qualified and beneficial. I think so. Absolutely. In whatever way that that's going to, you know, that's going to look. And, you know, it might even be something as simple as I, I won't work on Sunday, but I'm happy to happy to work late on a Thursday, right? Or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Just just finding something that will work for everybody. Being flexible. Yeah, being flexible. So how have you seen culture change over, I don't want to just limit it, maybe over the past decade since you've been doing this for longer than that? I think, you know, it's, I've seen culture change in two ways. One is the fact that we're even, we're talking about it, right? Which is not something we really used to do much of. I mean, even as recent as I would say five years ago, I had some colleagues say to me, I wouldn't really talk about culture openly because no one will hire you as a consultant. And I finally said, you know what? I don't need really, as a consultant, you don't need that many clients when you really think about it. So I need a few people every year, right? A few companies every year who think that culture is important and I'm going to be overt about it because, and of course, when we now, you know, see it's, it's in the news, it's all over the place. Lots of books are being written. Um, so it's a time where culture is openly talked about. So that's a huge change because I think it's more talked about societally. I think it's more talked about in some organizations. And I think the shift is around more around what's it like to have more trust and respect. We all have had experiences, you know, if you're of a certain age, where being an employee did not mean that you were necessarily respected or trusted. It really depended on the organization, but you were just supposed to come to work and do your job. And it didn't really matter how you felt about it in some companies. It probably still doesn't now, but we see more of that drive toward, yeah, people want to enjoy their work. They want some satisfaction. They, they want to use their talents and gifts, and they want to work in great cultures. Are you seeing... Um... A shift as more people work remote or are distributed across geographic reasons, are you seeing companies doing innovative things to maintain their culture while they allow for that kind of expansive and varied workforce? And what are you seeing? I think it's a really big challenge. I've had, I've, I've talked to some companies about that or, you know, that it, how it's a real challenge to distribute your culture and encourage the, the evolution of your culture in an intentional way when you're not sitting in the same place. And 
a lot of times companies will do things like they'll have, you know, they'll come up with norm, cultural norms for, if, let's say, you know, you have a team in India making this up and you have a team in the U.S., right? They'll talk about how to bridge the cultural gaps, right? The, the U.S.-Indian cultural gap, but then they'll move into what kind of team do we want to have? So it's, it's having a more overt conversation about the kind of culture you want to have when you're not sitting next to each other. It's almost like in a way you need to communicate about it more right? We're going to have this Mm -hmm. set of ground rules, this set of values. Even though we're virtual, we're going to do, we'll do something around celebrating our success as a team, you know? So it's really more getting creative around the communication of the culture, um, especially from a behavioral perspective, because you're not sitting next to each other to observe each other, which is a way culture gets transmitted, right? Is that we observe each other. I love that example, though, when you talked about the made-up team in India and the team in the U.S., Mm -hmm. let's say, which actually could be made up of people who are working off-site in those countries. But do you find that when we have teams, let's just assume they're fairly homogenous, either because people live in the same town or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, but they're culturally different because of the countries and the traditions that, that people are steeped in. Do you have like a subculture or a sub-identity within that that then rolls up to a corporate or a company identity? Am I, does that a clear question? I think so, yeah. I, cultures, generally speaking, usually have subcultures, right? So that team, so let's take that team, right, uh, with people who have different traditions and come from different countries. That's a fascinating culture. If that, as that team comes together and they're successful in working together, they will build their sub, a subculture, right? Um, that will certainly be influenced by, we know people, you know, every country has its own styles of communication, right? So you'd have those similarities and differences in communication. They would learn how to, they'd learn how to talk, to get, talk together and work together. So they'd come up with us, they'd, they'd create ideally a subculture within that larger corporate culture. And we see that, the corporate culture influences the subcultures of, in teams, but also teams themselves will will intentionally or unintentionally form the ways that they work together. Talk a little bit more about that flip, you know, how the teams influence company culture and the company culture can influence the teams. As Even though those are two made-up teams, I started getting really excited. Like, I'd like to work on those because, yeah. <laughs> well, because yeah, think yeah. about what you would learn. Like when you right. say people will learn different ways to communicate, I'm thinking, how fun would that be to learn? Like, how do you communicate differently and effectively? I mean, that would just be so fun. It'd be bumpy at parts, right? When you were clumsy with it. But Mm -hmm. once you had it under your belt, it could be so satisfying to work like that. So back to my question of you, how do do those two things interplay or affect each other? Mm -hmm. I think that the corporate culture itself, right? Because it's bigger, it has, can have more of an influence. It's like a blanket, you know, over the, the individual teams. Um, and so, you know, norms around certainly the values as we've talked about norms, mindsets and norms around behavior, you know, things like how decisions are made, how time is handled, how conflict is handled, right? Things like that. What is expected of leaders? What behaviors are rewarded? What behaviors are not rewarded or looked down upon? So all of that's going to influence individual teams. And then the teams themselves, I think especially if they're, they're really successful in their teamwork or successful in their, their outcomes, or they're very innovative, or they're charged with a project that does really well, you know, anything that stands out, 
um, they themselves can be pioneers, so to speak, within the larger culture, right? If they come up with an amazing way to use our, our team that we've been talking about of communicating amongst differences, and they say, and they bring it in out, they bring it up to the leadership team, or they bring it up to another team and say, hey, this is what we did, and it worked really well, and those ideas spread, then they're influencing the larger culture. And if the ideas stick, then those ideas become part of a part of that larger corporate culture. I'm so excited about this made-up team. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. It is fun because it's just all the potential there. Right, exactly. And the interplay between the two, which for me is, is actually a big statement about culture, is if you're willing to learn from your teams as an organization, regardless of your size, whether you're a nonprofit or a corporation or whatever, if your teams are... A, teaching vehicle for the organization as well as vice versa, it can be very rewarding. So now I just realized that since you've had your business for so many years, talk to me about your culture. Yeah, thank you. The culture um, is definitely one of, you know, it's it's a lot of creativity, being willing to be innovative. Um, It's very... I really like to have good relationships with with the people I work with. So it's a lot of around building those relationships, understanding how to work together. Uh, a lot of because again of the cult, when you're a consultant working in culture, it's that work takes a lot of it's very nuanced work. Often a lot it takes a lot of sensitivity, and so working with people, I have some different consultants that will will come in on different projects, and they're all people that are really they're great listeners. Um, they're great at sensing the nuance of things and really standing back so they don't make it about them um, because it's so important in this work not to do that. Uh, so there's, I think, a humility and a reverence that's part of uh, our culture for sure in terms of the work that we do with, with people and with organizations. How do you keep your folks feeling, you know, one of the things you talked about, what's important is feeling respected and mm-hmm. valued. How do your your team feel that way? What do you do as a leader? You know, I, some of those little tangible things. Because mm-hmm. I know when people say, you know, I I like to have good relationships and we mm-hmm. work together. What might that look like during a work day or a work week? So we are we all speaking of your your example of the team that doesn't sit together, right? <laughs> Everyone has home offices and things like that as consultants. So um, or whether they're consultants or there's uh, you know someone who's in this does some assisting work for me and things like that. Someone who books speaking engagements, but everybody's all, all in different places for the most part. And for me, it's, I think of respect in terms of the tangibles you were mentioning as things like, I do what I say I'm going to do. And I expect other people to, that's a high value of mine is follow through and integrity. Um, even things like paying on time, you know, communicating on time. And especially when you're not sitting together and you can't just go over and say, you know, do you have a minute, right? I'm, I might be saying that through a chat or, you know, whatever, or sending up a Zoom call um, or sending an email. But, but really having those agreements about how we're going to work together and honoring them and following through. And then also making sure people are doing work that they really love, right? I know what, what people like to do. I know what they are they're most talented at. So keeping that aligned. So I, if I have a project that comes in, I'm not saying, you know, I'm asking to, someone to do something. I know that they're gonna, it's going to make them internally groan. Because um, there's somebody else who probably loves it, uh, so I think that's that's no, knowing what brings what like what lights people up, right? What yeah. causes them to shine? I love it. That is the fun part of working in a team is knowing, getting to know what really does light people up. 
mm-hmm. and then asking that of them. You talked early on about when you had that experience of working for a boss who really made you feel great by giving you autonomy and a job to do with, gave you the parameters and then said, go forth, make it happen. Do you think that's a constant or a con- kind of an, I'm not sure constant's the right word, but do you think that's an indicator of when teams or individuals feel more valued is when they have autonomy with parameters or is that just a personality preference? I think most people, I can think of exceptions to what I'm about to say for sure, but I think a lot of people uh, want the autonomy with parameters, right? Let me go because it's so empowering when you can create something and you know, and you know your parameters, right? So you're not going to hear later, well, you should have gone left when you went right, which is so frustrating. You know, that's all laid out in advance. And I, I also know people who really want to be told what to do, or I can think of a couple of companies I've worked with told what to do, or because they don't want to take the risk or responsibility to own that. And in those companies, almost always, we did a lot of work on, on ownership, on having people come forward and own what was theirs to own, you know, within, within their particular role um, and the importance of being able to make a decision and act on it. That's what I was going to ask you. Is it a, is the reluctance to be in, have that ownership mentality an aversion to being accountable or is it not wanting to take a risk and feeling too vulnerable or maybe not safe? I, you know, one company I'm thinking of, it, it certainly can be accountability, but I'm the one I'm thinking of. A lot of it stemmed from people in the past having spoken up or taken, having, having taken a risk by making a decision about something and then being told they shouldn't have done it. You know, oh, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have made that decision. You should have made this decision. So the feedback wasn't handled skillfully. And so it wasn't a learning opportunity like, oh, let's sit down and talk about that decision. You know, I really want to, and then say, oh, well, then the person could say, oh yeah, now I see where you're coming from. So next time this comes up, you know, I'll do this differently. Instead, they were just told, you know, no, don't, you know, why did you make that decision? What were you thinking? And then, you know, people, of course, shut down. It's human nature. Well, and it goes back to your example of being in your toxic job where your confidence got eroded, right? Right. If you're told that was the wrong decision frequently enough, you pretty either quit making them, you're going, okay, fine, just pay me to show up. Or I don't know how to make a decision. And so I keep checking back and forth, back and forth. When you were speaking about that, though, it made me think of something else, and then it left my mind, um, <laughs> because I there was something about specifically looking at those two companies you were thinking about, so it'll come back to me. It usually does. Okay. Um, in general, when you think about how culture has changed over the past few years, has our technology influenced it in in a particular way. And I'm thinking about how we interact with social media, not necessarily the communication piece, like the distributed teams, like we were talking about, Mm -hmm. but has our technology for ill or good changed culture? I think it absolutely has in some ways. Um, I think, you know, we're all familiar with the benefits and perils of social media and, you know, in, in terms of how that impacts us societally. And then I was um, a year or two ago, I interviewed Michael Mankins, who wrote Time, Talent, and Energy, which is a really interesting book. And he mentioned something that I had not thought of, which has stayed with me, which was that we have more statistically more meetings than we've ever had before in organizations. 
And he said, it's because it is so easy for them to be scheduled. (laughs) Right. I'm like, oh, of course, that makes so much sense. And thinking back to how I remember when I first started my career, there was a point at which we got voicemail, right? So initially, like, you know, you'd go to the administrative assistant and get your messages, right? And then, and then at some point we got voicemail and then a few years after that email, the beginning of email, but it was, it took so much longer to schedule a meeting. You just didn't have nearly as many of them, right? Especially if you were arranging a meeting with people outside of your organization. Well, then it was talking to their administrative assistant and you're, you know, back and forth, right? Trying to sequence calendars, sync calendars. So I think that has changed our culture that people talk a lot about. I sit in meetings all day long. I do my work at the end of the day, which is crazy to even say in a sentence, but I do my work at the end of the day. So that that has changed culture and it, it's created, I think, a, a layer of stress that didn't exist as universally before and, and kind of this, this freneticism, I don't think that existed nearly as much before. Are people reluctant when you when you work with them in organizations and you note it, and if that's something that comes up as a cultural thing that there's constantly meetings, are people reluctant to say, I'm just not going, you know, could we do this through email or is there a fear of either being punished, which may be too hard of a word or missing out. And so people show up just in body, not even in attention. I, I think that some of it is, you know, am I, I have to be at this meeting because I'm supposed to be at this meeting, right? Or mm-hmm. I was invited, so I'm, you know, so some organizations don't invite well, they'll invite, you know, 10 people when you only needed four. So some of that, I think that's true. And then I'm thinking of one company I did some work with and they did a nice job. And certainly some meetings were mandatory, but other meetings, they'd invite people and whoever, you know, be clear what the topic was, they had a whole system in place and whoever thought they should be there would show up. So they, those folks had, more and they still talked about having too many meetings but they they had some some options that not all people have in terms of what they intended so if you were going to prescribe to us how to handle that because i do hear that often too it's like i'll i'll be able to do that when i get home tonight right mm-hmm. well, when do you recharge if you're going yeah, you? all day long yeah and when do you do your brain work for me i can't do it at night cuz i'm tapped out it's daytime mm-hmm. so or morning and ironically, no one wants to meet with me at 5.30 in the morning. But when, what do you recommend to folks to kind of help get a handle on that so that they're, they can do better at work and have a better environment? I think the first, the first thing is to raise the issue, right? We're in a lot of meetings. And especially if you observe, let's say, the course of a month or two, right? How many meetings are really meaningful? How many meetings are really productive? How many meetings did you sit in where you thought, why am I here, right? Or nothing's happening. Also, you know, some companies will think that if they get together and talk about something, they've accomplished it, accomplished something. You know, what you really, the, the point of our meeting is either to update each other or to make a decision about something, assign who's going to take action and, and, take action, have that person report back. So it's also redefining what is the, what is the point of a meeting and what are we going to do when we're in it to make it really productive? And I, I think those are some, those are some initial thoughts. The other thing I experiment with in companies too is shortening meeting times, you know, because people, conversation expands to fill the time slot. So what's it like to have a, a half hour meeting? Better yet, what's a five minute? What can we do in five Five, minutes? Or five minutes. (laughs) Where'd it go? 
depending on your topic, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's really shortening it. If we had to settle this in the next 15 minutes, could we just, let's try it. I just, um, to that point was interviewing someone who was new on a job and she was told she got a call on a crisis in the middle of the night. She says, we're coming, we're going to pick you up, bring you in, and you're going to have to make a decision. You're going to have exactly 45 minutes to make the decision. And it was a national level issue. Right? Wow. And she's new on the job. She said, well, you're sending me the briefing paper, correct? And they said, of course, we're sending you the brief." She goes, so I figured I had drive time to read that briefing paper and everybody in the room. We're smart people that had, they had thoughts and recommendations. And she just said, I, I listened. And then I said, okay, here's my understanding of these three options. None of them were perfect. This is the best of the three. Do you guys agree? And they said, yeah, absolutely. She goes, okay, we're done. Right. It's like, we came to make one decision. That was it. And I said, how did you do that? And she goes, I have no idea to this day how I had had the guts to do that. (laughs) you know but she but she just did it but it was that clarity she was told up front there's one decision you have to make and it i mean it was big but it was not getting bogged down into a bunch of other stuff that helped her to do that and also knowing that she had a limited amount of time the clock was ticking and that pressure of like you're saying shorten the meetings have a very specific purpose that may have been to one extreme of it but i think you're right we can do more in less time if we hold ourselves to staying focused or when we're off track, say, that's not on, that's not why we're meeting today. Can we come back to that another time? And, and I, I love that story. Thanks for sharing that about your client, because I, it, the other thing I hear in it was her level of focus that she, you know, is there a briefing paper? Yes. Great. I'll read that on the drive, you know? And so she, she stayed focused and didn't let her whatever other, if we, if more time had been allowed, right, most of us would have then questioned, oh, I think that's the right decision, but this is so important. I better, you know, think about right. it again. And we go back and forth in our heads. And she right. didn't have the luxury to do that. Right. She had yeah. to move. Yeah. Yeah. I love it too. But it, and it really does speak to if we feel good about ourselves and our past decisions or our ability to make decisions, I think we're also in a position where we we're willing to take that risk. I think so. Yeah. So I, you know, I really like when you talk about that shorter meetings and I'm a big fan of shorter meetings. Yeah, (laughs) I am because there's really cool work to be doing in the world and you don't do it sitting in a meeting. No, Um, you don't. I want to take you off topic for just a minute on how to work with organizations. Talk a little bit about your book and because it's brand new out Mm -hmm. and what people will get from that and how, if I'm reading it, how I will benefit from it. Yeah, the book, uh, thanks to the book, Cultural Brilliance, the DNA of Organizational Excellence. So it is, it's about creating what I call brilliant cultures. And we've, without naming, using the words brilliant cultures tonight, we've talked a lot about them, right? It's this untapped potential. Um, it's bringing out the, the positivity, the invention, the intelligence in people and organizations. Um, and really, and, and creating organizations that are adaptable um, in the sense that they respond to change in ways that actually decrease their stress and inspire more learning. So it's but a, instead of change being something that's draining and hard, it becomes something that's actually elevating. So when people, so that's the beginning of the book that really sets the stage. And then after that, it is it's actually a roadmap. It's a pathway for organizations that want to intentionally change their culture. 
So taking them through a process of, of understanding how their culture operates, um, then understanding the kind of culture, determining what culture they need to support where they're going and their people, and then de- designing a way to get there. And then the last part of the book is the, the implementation or integration of that change. So it sounds like if an organization wasn't able to ask an outside person to come in yet, if they had your book, they could at least say, well, this is what Claudette says we need to do. So it's not me. I'm telling you, this is what we need to do based on Claudette and her book. But it sounds like that roadmap could be created. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. And there are parts yeah. of the book and com- ideas in the book, too, that a team could take and apply. You know, it doesn't have to be an entire organization. Um, I like to say this is a book you can give your boss. <laughs> you could read it and say, hey, you opened a, a, a different way of thinking about culture. <laughs> Here you go. So th- those are the main things. And the last section of the book is focused specifically on leadership and just ways that leaders can really help uh, in- impact and influence a great culture. I think that's so great. There's just so much talent in organizations, and especially now that we've got these multi-generational organizations, that it's unfortunate if if we're leaving what you're saying potential on the table. And then in the dollars and cents of it, there's a real cost to to that happening to folks. Absolutely. So I want you to go back before you ever started your organization, Mm -hmm. thinking about when you were back at in your early career days, if someone were to come to you and you were younger then, what it, and they were about your age then is what I meant to say, what advice would you give them about navigating a toxic organization uh, or at least talking to their supervisor or boss that you've learned that might help them? You know, the thing that comes to mind is to really trust yourself and trust your impressions and experiences. Uh, trust your gut, you know, your intuition. And I think that's what, you know, people, sometimes in those toxic cultures, we start not, we start mistrusting ourselves um, that what we are experiencing is accurate, you know, for us. So I think that really trusting yourself and then in terms of talking to a manager about it, something, and I even did this in early in my career, just get really preparing, getting clarity on this is the message I'd like to communicate, right? I have three talking points. This is what I'd like to get across. I have examples to back up each one. Um, I think sometimes people of all ages will go in to see their manager and uh, get very emotional, and which is absolutely fine if people get to have feelings at work. However, when you're trying to communicate an important message, you wanna ha- you wanna be calm, collected, have your messages, and have your examples. In my experience, and communicate that. So now, my last question for you. Second to last question is, what do you read and how do you recharge yourself doing all this work? Um, I tend to read, my reading is more of a recharge, right? So I am, I am admittedly not reading business books <laughs> in my spare time. I do read business books for, you know, as, as it relates to my business, but I read different kinds of magazines. I read, I love interior design. I love arts and, you know, the arts and crafts movement. I read magazines related to that. And then I, love um i love mysteries so mystery series of different kinds so i've always i've always loved that so i read different detective mysteries and and those are the things that i read to recharge fun yeah okay i may may, i may need to get book lists from you hey so what what is the best way for folks to reach out to you find out about you and your team 
because I would imagine there's some companies here who are going, I think I need to connect with Claudette. So the best way is my website, which is culturalbrilliance.com. And you can find out more about the book, more about how we work. Um, there's a resource page with different, different free resources. And uh, then there's also a solutions page that talks about some of the different uh, ways we, we work with organizations. Those two things alone would be really valuable, folks. So we'll make sure all of your connection information is in the um, show notes for the podcast so that people can reach out and connect to you. So Claudette, you've given me a lot to think about today, and I want to thank you for that. I actually am going to go to your website and look at your resources list when I'm off of the podcast. So thank you for your time. and. Thanks for sharing all of your knowledge with us because it's exciting to see what can come when we have good culture and when people feel valued and want to contribute. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was a great conversation. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a no labels, no limits, and no excuses life.